So, uh, apparently I'm the new pastor of First Baptist Church of Denver City. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Man, it's my privilege to be over here. Uh, I, I'm, I got to do what Kyle is doing today. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I was also pastor at Olton uh, for a little while. No, he's on vacation. That was last week. Dude, did your pastor ever work? Um, I, I love your pastor. Do you know how fortunate you are to have Kyle Strine as your pastor? Dude, he is, well, he's just my best friend in the world. And I am so, so thankful for him. And uh, never take him for granted, okay? Appreciate him. Uh, show your gratitude towards him. Um, this world is getting harder and harder to do what we do. Um, and, you know, this next year is going to be interesting with COVID beginning to peak its ugly head and the decisions we're going to have to make. And it's stressful, folks. I, I have to make those same decisions. And uh, so love your pastor. Pray for him every day. Uh, that will not return to you void. I have been going through the book of Acts, as I think most of you are, are familiar now. Uh, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we're into chapter 9. So if you would get your copy of God's Word, turn to chapter 9. And we're going to be talking about the, the, the conversion of Paul today. And uh, long passage, I want to read through it. Never hurts to read the Word of God, amen. Uh, but, uh, and I can't get to everything that's in this passage uh, but I do want to talk about a couple of things that I think are very, very important. And, uh, and so let's do that together. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, you are everything. And I need your help. So, Father, as we look at your scriptures together today, um, we want to hear from you and only you. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen. So let's get our copy of God's Word. Acts chapter 9, let's just start reading. Verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill, notice that, eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, and watch this, why are you persecuting me? Now this is fascinating, right? Jesus does not see the church as an it. He does not see the church as a building. In fact, you can kind of say he doesn't even see it as a group of people. He sees it as himself. That he is so united to his church that we are one and the same. In fact, and I think I've shared this with you before. I know Kyle has. That, that, that when we are saved, when the Lord just miraculously steps in through the wonderful gift of his grace, we are baptized or immersed by the Holy Spirit into Christ. Just this miraculous thing. We become a part of, immersed in the body. We are, as he says, me. And this is going to throw Saul completely off. I mean, you know, he's like, uh, who are you? You know, what is this me thing you're talking about? I don't know anybody bright and shiny like you. But folks, what you have to get here is there is no distinction. Now, listen to me. There is no distinction between Jesus and his church. 
There is no separation between love for Jesus and commitment to his bride, his church. We don't see that oftentimes. Jesus refers to the church as me. He also refers to the church as, as bride. You can't say you love Jesus and not have anything to do with his, with his, with his significant other. It would be like you calling me, hey, Patrick, love to see you. Come on by the house. You know, we'd love to have supper. Do not bring Melissa. I mean, how would you react if somebody said that about your wife? And, and I say this because I'm talking to some here, maybe some online, that you say you love Jesus, but you're only marginally involved in the church. And I'm telling you, there's no question at all. I mean... We're reading it right now. Based on the Bible, you should be very involved in your local church. Now, you don't have to be doing that here. But you better be. And I know a lot of us, we're, we're consumers. We're all driven by consumerism. And we even bring that to church. And we prefer fast food. And we, we prefer have it your way. This, this one night stand kind of spirituality. And, and you might even have said from time to time, you know, the church embarrasses me. Well, it embarrasses Jesus too. And you embarrass him, by the way. If Jesus identifies with broken, embarrassing things like you and me, in the church, why would you think that you're too good to identify with the church? You realize how arrogant that is? Verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now later on, there's something very interesting that happens here. This story is recounted by Paul in front of the Jewish council in Acts chapter 26, all right? And he adds a phrase. He heard something in addition to what was said here. Notice this. This is Acts 24, verse uh, 26, verse 14. It's on the screen. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now notice what he adds. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now what in the world is going on there? What are the goads? Well, we live in agricultural world out here, right? Most of you have at least been around animals. When you need a, a pig or a cow to move, you take a stick and you poke it. Get moving. You prod it. You goad it, right? That's it's not hard to understand. And some of those cows, some of those pigs, if you poke them too hard, they kick back against it. They don't like it. It's irritating. Well, what was irritating Saul? What was goading Saul? The death of Stephen. There were some crazy things that happened there. He was asking for forgiveness as he's being stoned to death? What is up with that? These Jesus people are weird. The way they die? It just didn't make sense to him. Verse 7. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now get the picture here. This is Saul the mighty, Saul the persecutor, Saul the one doing the Lord's work. Saul, who saw everything so clearly, this is what must be done. And now he can't see. He is being led around. 
The man who was seizing people is now seized himself by God Almighty, by Jesus Christ. Saul, the hammer who broke others, is now himself broken by the anvil of Christ. Verse 10. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying for me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that, so that he can see again. Verse 13, but Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Now at this point, Ananias is like, uh, for a minute there, I thought you said Paul of Tar- uh, Saul of Tarsus. LOL, that's a good one, Jesus, you know? Because this would be like a few years ago, God showing up to one of us and saying, hey, Patrick, I want you to run down to Allsup's. There's this guy there that I want you to uh, meet. I want you to take him into your home. I want you to take him to church. He's a tall guy, turban, ZZ top beard. Uh, goes by the name of Osama bin Laden. That's the equivalent here. Go take a terrorist into your home. That's what Ananias is facing. Verse 15. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and, and, and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went out and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight and then he got up and was baptized. Now, like I said, lots of stuff in this passage. I want to focus on two things briefly and we'll be done. The first one is, God pursues us. This is one of the most amazing truths in all of Scripture. That God pursues us. He pursued Paul, and he does the same thing for us. It's just this this amazing thing. Saul had several different things goading him towards Jesus, right? And we experience the same thing when, when we feel that goading, when we feel that, that, that pursuing, when we, when we feel that, that drawing, we need to recognize it for what it is. There's a hand on the other end of that stick, right? It's the creator of all things, the king of kings and lord of lords. He is pursuing you and me even before we're saved, folks. God is pursuing. He's drawing us to himself. How incredible is that? Incredible. We see this in John chapter 6, verse 44. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. God is the initiator. He's the one that takes the first step. You can't come to Jesus without being drawn. Now, that being true, the inverse is true as well. That if the Father draws, then you can come. See, that's a very important little word there, that word can. If you look it up in the Greek, it simply means ability. You can come. When drawn, you can come. Now, you don't have to. And you were speaking about some kids at youth camp. They're resisting, right? They can come. They don't have to. 
The gift is being offered. They're being drawn. But they certainly can come. Well, then the question becomes, well, then, who's being drawn? Who's being pursued? Well, same book, same author, same speaker, Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 12, look at it on the screen, verse 32. And when I am lifted up, I will draw who? Everyone to myself. Everyone. Who's being drawn? Everyone. Can y'all hear me? Who's being drawn? Everyone. Everyone. We talk about oikos all the time, right? This is what this is all about. 24-7, 365, God is goading, pursuing, drawing people towards Himself. And for some crazy, weird reason, He has chosen us to be the, the, the vehicle of that message. Here's, here's, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. What an awesome God we have. That while we were yet sinners, which identifies us as His enemy, He died for us. He's drawing us towards Himself. Gracious beyond description. C.S. Lewis, my absolute favorite author, outside of Jesus, you know. He was an atheist literature professor at Oxford University. I don't know if you're aware that he was an atheist. Vowed, I mean, atheist before he came to Jesus. And one of the things he would write about is how he fought against the drawing, the pursuing, the goading, that sometimes it was absolutely mentally, emotionally, spiritually painful. He called himself, and I love this, the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. He fought. Sounds like some of us. But never doubt. The God of the universe is pursuing you and me and all the people that we come in contact with on a daily basis. A second thing I want you to notice here, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time, is that we've all been blind. We've all been blind. Paul's blindness is given here as a, as a, as a picture, as an illustration of, of all people who are separate, separated from Christ, who have refused the gift that's being offered to them, or at least resistant to it. There are primarily two forms of spiritual blindness. First off, there is irreligious blindness. This is this idea of atheism. This is the idea that... that that I believe I can run my life better than you can. That I don't really need God. I don't need a Jesus. I don't even think He exists. So I don't believe in Him. I think that's kind of ironic. And so you pursue this, 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 what the Bible calls the sin of pride. I'd rather be in charge. And the thing is, is that that life, that approach, that understanding to life, a lot of times things are great for a little while. Did, did you know that sin can be a lot of fun? Wow, y'all are better people than me. I used to have a preacher. First Baptist Church, Jayton, Texas. Jayton Jaybirds. Our school colors were clear. Naked as a jaybird. <laughs> anyway. Um, that's funny. I don't care who you are. I had a preacher who would say often, sin ain't fun. And I'm sitting on the back row as a teenager thinking... 
man, you ain't doing it right then. Because, <laughs> man, I, I enjoy that stuff. Folks, there wouldn't be any, any temptation to sin if there weren't some fun to it. But here's what always happens. You wake up one day and you realize that there's this string of broken relationships. You developed addictions trying to deal with the hole in your life. The void. Right? Your life is empty. There's no real purpose to, what, to what's going on. That's a result of this irreligious blindness that many of us suffer from. But really, the one that gets most of us in church world is religious blindness. Religious blindness. This is that where if I can be good enough, I can somehow earn God's you know, approval. If I try hard enough, if I, if I keep the rules well enough, then God is going to accept me. And the problem is, is that this philosophy, this approach to this religion is very hypocritical and very self-centered because really what it's all about is you're trying to prove to yourself as well as to the people around you of how good you are. That you somehow have earned your way into a particular position. Martin Luther, he calls it the evil of good deeds. This is, this is brilliant. He said, we know, everyone, every single one of us know we need to repent of sin. But one of the blind spots we have because of the religious blindness is, is that we also need to repent of the bad motives behind our good deeds. Motives are so important. You realize that, right? Because the reality is, is a lot of us are doing the good things that we do in order to, to gain the approval of the people around us. I want you to see what I'm doing. I want you to notice how, 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 how I sacrifice and how I give. And Martin's, Martin Luther's saying very clearly, man, you need to repent of those motives. Because you see, what happens when, you're, when you have religious blindness is, is it's exhausting. Have you ever tried to be good? Are any of you any good at it? I have never been good at being good. Not one time. And it's just exhausting. And there's this constant comparison thing going on. Well, yeah, I've sinned there, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing better than oh, so-and-so over here. Well, I'm not Hitler. <laughs> okay, there you go. That bar's been set high. And what happens is, is those comparisons lead only to one of two places. This is the only place they can go. Pride, look at how good I am. Here's all my medals on the wall. Notice how wonderful I am. Or... This is my, this is my ending, despair. I can't, I can't do it. I cannot do this. I cannot live up to this. And if you live in that religious blindness long enough, what, what will happen is, is it leads to jealousies. And if that's allowed to percolate in your life long enough, it leads to fear and to hatred. And if that's allowed enough to percolate long enough in your life, it leads to violence. And that's why religious people like Saul are the meanest, stinking people on the planet. It's the reason why the church lady on Saturday Night Live years ago that Dana Carvey was, hit, so many, hit so many strings in our lives because we know people like that. In fact, some of us, we are like that, judgmental and nasty. It's because we're religiously blind. When I've had conversations with atheists, atheists over, year, uh, over the years, and they say, you know, religion's the problem. My immediate answer is, you're exactly right. 
religion is evil. Don't ever doubt it. Now, in contrast to all of that is Jesus. Jesus and His amazing grace. I'm just going to tell you one more time. Jesus died in our place for our sin, paying the penalty that you should have paid. He clothes us in His righteousness, giving us, through the power of His resurrection, a new life and a new heart. And when Saul experienced God's grace, it changed everything. He was blind. Religiously blind. But now he could see. I had an atheist friend of mine, what, I used that phrase and he said, well, see what? What a great question. I'll tell you what he saw. It's on the screen. Paul saw the wonder of salvation. Just the, the wonder of... Have you ever just been in wonder of what Jesus has done for you? Instead of this, well, you know, I'm a pretty good old boy. And, you know, I, I don't know that I'm perfect, but I'm doing pretty good. Instead of that, it's this whole thing of, I cannot believe he died for me. It's almost laughable. It's almost... It's almost, how would, why would he die for me? There's, there's, a, there's a book of letters, a guy named uh, John Newton. Are you familiar with John Newton? John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, the hymn. And in this book of letters, there's one when he was a very old man. He was writing to a friend of his, and I put it on the screen here. He said, by this point, I thought I'd be different. He's been a Christian for years. Always love to pray, not jealous, not controlled by money. But my love for God is sometimes cold. Prayer's not easy, right? Trying to live out the things that the Bible says, this is what you need. It's hard. And I, I relate to this. Boy, do I relate. By this point, I've been a pastor for 30 years. By this point, it looks like I'd be different. But notice what John Newton goes on to say. Look at this. The reason God allows us to continue to struggle all of our life with indwelling sin is, listen, He wants us to grow ever more amazed at His grace. I wish that was that smart. You see, most of us, we measure our spirituality by performance, right? That's how we measure everything, is by performance. How patient we are, you know, you know, how long I pray, how often I share Jesus with my oikos, you know, how often I attend church. Saul's was how well he kept the law. It's all about performance. And the problem is that, that on this side of heaven, we have this sinful flesh. It's in there. That's, that's what John Newton is saying. Yes, the Holy Spirit is in us. Never doubt that. But there's also this sinful side. And there's this, there's this war going on constantly. And we become constantly discouraged if we base our religious fitness on performance. You see, most of us, and I want you to hear me here. Most of us think that, that Christian growth. Are you with me? Most of us think that Christian growth is getting to a place where we really don't need God's grace as much anymore. Now, your immediate response to that may be, no, that's ridiculous, but I want you to think about it for a minute. 
Okay, I had this sin of, I was impatient. And so, Lord, I need some help with the patience. And over the years, through, through all the things that the Holy Spirit does with us, through the Word of God, we have become more patient. And our tendency is, well, then I don't need any help in that area anymore, so I'll move on someplace else. Folks, we're never going to measure up on this side of heaven. You do realize that. The, the, the measuring stick is not the person next to you. The measuring stick is Jesus. There are two types of people in this world. There's Jesus and everybody else. <laughs> He's the measuring stick. He's the measuring stick. Spiritual growth, listen to me, spiritual growth is an increasing wonderment at the, at the grace of God. Just standing in awe of, of, of what He has done and why He's done it. He just did it because He loves us. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, from this point forward, from the point of his conversion that we read about in chapter, chapter 9, he would continue his entire life being just full of wonder concerning the grace of God. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 for, for an example. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And notice what he says. I'm the worst of them all. Now, wait a second. Doesn't Paul wear a cape, have a big P on his chest, fly around the Mediterranean? Super Paul. Nope. Because you see, once Jesus entered into his life and he began to understand what grace was, instead of hypocrisy, look at how good I am, I'm so awesome, Paul became characterized by transparency. It was all about transparency. Paul would, from this point on, constantly admit his failings. Look in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, for an example. You ever feel like this? And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. He goes on, verse 19. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong. I do it anyway. You see, the reason Paul is so transparent is because he doesn't want people coming to him. He wants people going to Jesus. Jesus is your answer. Not, not me, Paul. Not Patrick. Patrick is not your answer. Dude, I'm not in management. I'm just, I'm just in sales. I, I, I'm just a mailman. I'm not your answer. Jesus is your answer. And, and honestly, folks, I am tiring of listening to preachers and teachers who make you think that they've got it all together all the time. And the reason is, is because when I listen to those guys, I have nothing in common with them. I have no idea what it feels like to have it all together. Absolutely none. If you want something worried about, give me a call. And here's all you have to do. Call and say, hey, I want to talk to you about something and hang up. I'll worry about it until I see you the next time. What was it you wanted to talk to me about? I have got so many scenarios running through my head of what I've done wrong. That tells you the sin in my own life because the first place I go is, what have I done wrong? I'm just one beggar trying to tell other beggars where to find food. And that's one of the things I really admire about the Apostle Paul. He remained a beggar his entire life. Paul was also characterized by graciousness instead of hatred 
and pride. He was characterized by hatred and pride, but Jesus, the encounter with Jesus, man, it flipped that. You do, you do realize that the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, right? Love is patient, love is kind. You remember that? We often use it in, in, in weddings referring to marriage, but that's, that's not the original context. It does apply in the marriage. It's talking about you and me, the church, how we relate to one another, right? You do realize that the guy who wrote that passage was a murderer. That's his history. One of the meanest human beings that's ever existed on the face of the planet, Paul the Apostle. This is also the same Paul who in Romans chapter 9, speaking to his fellow brothers and sisters, Jewish brothers and sisters. Look at this. Romans chapter 9 verse 3. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save some of my Jewish brothers and sisters. Now think of that. This is the same guy who just a few years earlier was was putting his brothers and sisters in chains, hauling them off to prison, even some of them being murdered. And now he's saying he would gladly give up his eternity if Israel would simply listen. You see, those who believe and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the grace begins to permeate our hearts and souls, it begins to transform us into the image of Christ. We become more and more like Him. We begin to think like Him, love like Him. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Saul, his name, was, his name was changed to Paul. But do you know what the name Paul actually means? Does anybody know? It means small. It's almost like a Dr. Seuss. Saul became Paul, which means small, you know? It, but it means small. And Paul would spend the rest of his days talking about himself as a small man who was the recipient of the great big grace of God. It's Paul, the murderer, who said things like, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus. What he has done. You can't earn it through your works. You can only receive it by faith. You know, you, you don't have to be good at being good. You're not any good at it anyway. It's not about trying. It's about trusting. It's not about success in doing. It's about faith in what has already been done. It's Paul, the murderer. The murderer. Who said, be kind to each other. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. Just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Instead of fear, it was Paul who said, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to fear anymore about whether you've crossed the line of goodness to get in. There's no condemnation anymore. It's Paul who, instead of jealousy and pride, said, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. He was God. He gave up all of that divine privilege. Gave it all up. And he humbled himself to the position of a servant, to that of a slave. Instead of anger and wrath, revenge, it was the revenger Paul who said, put away all malice. Put all that aside. Stop seeking revenge. Refuse to repay evil for evil. Overcome evil by doing good. And it's the Apostle Paul who said, we can do all of those things, not in our own strength. We can only do it. Through God's amazing grace. You do remember these words, right? John Newton, 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. testimony. Those are John Newton's words, but that's Paul's testimony. Paul could have written, written that. Jesus did what religion could never do. Listen to me, First Denver City. Religion can't save you. It can't even grow you. It's grace. It's grace. I need you to think about this question for the rest of the week. Okay? I need you to write this down. Everybody, I want you to get a piece of paper and a pencil, and I want you to write this question down. And I need you to meditate on it. I need you to sit on it for the next week. Are you ready? Have you lost the wonder of God's grace? Have you lost the wonder of God's grace? Have you? The fountain of the Christian life is the experience of grace. You never move on from grace. You keep coming back to grace. You don't grow as a Christian by moving away from grace. You grow as a Christian by moving into grace. John Newton, I don't know if you know this about him, but, but do you know what he did for a living? John Newton was a slave ship trader. He shuffled those poor men and women across the Atlantic for years. And when God changed his heart, when God opened his eyes to who he was and what he was doing... He said, every time I would, I would look on those ships, just the horror of all of it would come back. And he would realize, that was me. I made a living selling people into slavery. And he never got over the fact that God's grace was extended to him. He never lost the wonder of the fact that a person as wretched as him could be saved. In some of our hymnals, people are changing the words of amazing grace. Have you noticed this? Instead of amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, they're changing it to saved and strengthened me. Saved and set me free. And if you do a little research into why they're making that change, you're going to find out that some Christian people have decided that they aren't really wretches. 
that the concept of being a wretch is just not needed to be saved. It's offensive. It's too harsh. It's, it's humiliating. Well, I'm not a wretch. John Newton and the Apostle Paul, they knew without a doubt who they were. A wretch in desperate need of grace. And the Bible tells us, I'm sorry if you feel differently. I'm just here to tell truth. Again, I'm just a mailman. You are a wretch in desperate need of Jesus. In fact, Paul would say this of himself in Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul, the one spreading the gospel all over the Mediterranean area. Look at what he says. Here it is. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Do you remember what Paul's answer was? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And His amazing grace. Pray with me. Father, has First Baptist Church of Denver City lost the wonder of your grace? Father, I do. I get so caught up in the good things that I'm doing. That I must be reminded often, I am a wretch. Even to this day, Father, my sinful nature fights. And I can't do what I, what I know I should do. I'm doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing. And Father, I need your help. I need your grace. Father, never let me lose my wonder, my awe. Father, is there somebody here who they realize this morning, man, I need that. I didn't realize. Father, is there somebody here who's never crossed that line? They, they're living in blindness. They, they've never been woken up to the fact that Jesus loves them, has died for them, and that the gift of relationship and eternity is right there, just being offered. Is there somebody here this morning that needs that gift? Father, give them the courage to at the very least ask somebody a question. Start a conversation. And Father, if they're brave enough that they would just walk forward and say, I need Jesus this morning. Is there somebody here? Give them courage. And Father, for the rest of us, help us to remember that we're wretched. Help us to remember that if we do anything good, really, you should get the credit. Change our hearts. Fill us with wonder. Father, it's where our joy comes from, is that wonder.